0: Good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful, as I consider all that the Lord is doing in our midst, I'm thankful to be able to be a part of what is happening in our church. I'm excited for our upcoming move as we go through this time of transition I hope that you will join me in praying for this church body. Our hope and our prayer as we, as we transition, as we think ahead over the next month or two, as we transition and, and even beyond, our hope and our prayer would be that we continue to operate, if you will, or continue to uh, do church, if you want to use the, that term, according to what we call our ministry pillars. I think it's good for us to be reminded of why we exist as a church, We exist as a church to exalt our Lord, to exalt God in all that we do. We want every aspect of church ministry, every aspect, whether it be uh, worship and song that we just finished up, whether it be the prayer, whether it be the scripture reading, whether it be men's ministry or women's ministry, uh, whatever it is that we are doing, we want our ministry here to have as, as its aim the true worship of the triune God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at Grace Bible Church, we stand with the prophet Isaiah and the angels in declaring the holiness of God. And it's in Isaiah 6 where we see the angels calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We want to join with the angels in that way. And we also want to join with Isaiah. To, you know, in, in that same passage, Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. And I'm uh, from a people with unclean lips. His point was is that he knew that he couldn't stand before the Lord because of his sin. And we understand that. We understand that. That we serve a holy God. And we want to worship Him in all that we do. We also want to recognize that we cannot worship Him outside of understanding His Word. We can't know Him outside of his word therefore we are here we are committed to expositing the scriptures meaning that we want to preach and teach in such a way that reveals the scriptures to holy spirit filled believers we believe paul's words in second timothy 3:16 all scripture is inspired by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness we believe that the exposition of Scripture in our preaching will bring about a desire in the heart of the believer to be equipped. I know it did for me. As I heard uh, the Scriptures explained, I wanted to be equipped. I wanted to know more about how to do what that man up front was doing for me, for myself, to be able to and, and have a have better Bible study, have better understanding. Therefore, we exist then to equip the saints. Now, we don't just equip them because the saints, because they desire it. We equip the saints because God commands it. We believe that it is our job as a church body then to present every person complete in Christ. And that's, that's uh, exactly what Paul says. And Paul, again, captures our heart uh, for equipping in Colossians 128. He says, we proclaim Him, that'd be the Lord Jesus Admonishing every man and teaching every man, and that actually could be uh, translated everyone. I think that's how it's translated in the ESV. Admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Now meaning everyone in the church. We have the same kind of idea in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. He gave some as apostles and prophets, some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So we exist then to equip the saints. We do all these things, exalt God, we exposit the scriptures so that we can teach teach the, 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 the Word of God in, in that way, and we, and we equip the saints so that, so that we can evangelize the lost. We want to take the gospel to those who need it. We want to teach the gospel, we want to, 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 to share the gospel to a lost and dying world. And as a church, then, we are committed to preaching the gospel to a lost, dying, and increasingly hostile world, is it not? We want to glorify God by preaching His Word, equipping the saints so that they are prepared to preach the gospel to those who are dead in their sins. Now, Jesus Himself commanded that we make disciples of the nations in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We want to see God gloriously, gloriously save sinners. We want to see the Spirit of God move among the people of God such that they are... Uh, They are equipped to go out and preach the gospel. And when all these things are operative and all these these pillars, if you will, are operative, then we will experience a vibrant body life brought about by our oneness in the Spirit. And I would argue that healthy and faithful churches focus on those things. That's what we do. It's exactly what we do. Beloved, at Grace Bible Church... I want us, and I, know, and, I, and I know that you join me in wanting us to remain a faithful church. Now, as you may recognize, most churches, many churches, tend to drift. I mean, that's the tendency. The tendency, maybe you start out well, and maybe you, you start in the right way, but the tendency is to, to drift away. The tendency is to slowly move away from pure devotion to Christ and His Word. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, he says, tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. The idea there, the idea there is that we tend to, to drift toward the world. When we fall for the lies of Satan and abandon our first love, we lose the power of God. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, in proportion as a church is holy, in that proportion will its testimony for Christ be powerful. Last week we finished up from... Paul's letter to Ephesus. We spent uh, two years, two plus years going through that letter. In that final sermon uh, last week, we explored what faithfulness looks like in the life of a believer, but also in the body of Christ. Now last week we saw faithfulness. This week we're going to find out from Revelation 2, 1 through 7, how to remain faithful, how to remain faithful. So with that, let me pray and read our passage for today. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. Father, we pray that you would just be with the preacher as he preaches your word, that he would preach it not according to his own desires, but according to yours. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, empower the preacher so that he might Preach powerfully and authoritatively, not by his own authority, but by yours. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, This one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this I know your deeds and your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured by my namesake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, <coughs> that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to, to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Several months ago, it's been maybe more than that, but several months ago, Christianity to Get Today released a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Maybe you've listened to that podcast. And in it, which was several episodes long, the author chronicled the ministry of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill's church in Seattle, Washington. Driscoll helped plant that church in 1996, and after starting it, the church experienced explosive growth. In March 2014, Mars Hill had 14,000 members and 15 locations in five states. Driscoll also helped establish what's called the Acts 29 Church Planting Network, along with several other parachurch organizations. In October 2013, Driscoll's empire began to unravel as after he crashed a conference held by John MacArthur and Grace Community Church. At the time he arrived at the conference, I was actually there when it happened, he arrived without being invited and began to hand out copies of his newly released book. The resulting debacle within that conference led to further scrutiny of Driscoll's ministry and his books. Sadly, it was later discovered that he had plagiarized portions of the book he was attempting to promote. Earlier that same year, so this is happening about the same time, a former elder, Dave Kraft charged that Driscoll was domineering, verbally violent, arrogant, and quick-tempered. He further charged that these were an established pattern of behavior. In March 2014, four former elders started a blog called Repentant Pastor. In it, they posted confessions and apologies related to their roles at Mars Hill. They stated, We recognize and confess that Mars Hill has hurt many people within the Mars Hill community as well as those outside of that community. One of the four, Kyle Furstenberg, went on to state the following about Mark Driscoll. The reputation Driscoll got for being the cussing pastor simply because he used harsh language from the pulpit was nothing compared to the swearing and abusive language he used daily with staff. When asked When people ask me how I liked working at Mars Hill, I would simply say it's a great church to attend, but I wouldn't recommend working there. It was well known with the staff that what was preached on Sunday was not lived out on Monday morning with the staff, end quote. In August 2014, Acts 29 Network removed Driscoll and Mars Hill from membership. And at the end of that same month, he stepped away from pastoring the church. That was effectively the end of his ministry in that church and the beginning of the end of Mars Hill Church. Ultimately, the campuses moved forward as separate autonomous entities, but the whole situation has left a trail of hurt, distrust, and confusion, not only with those who were directly involved, those who were directly a part of Mars Hill Church, but in the wider church. Even today, there's there's differing opinions about what happened there. Sadly, during Driscoll's rise, there were men who didn't hold him to account. These men were trying to harness the energy of his meteoric rise and turned a blind eye to a personality which tended toward abusive. There were voices like John MacArthur who warned about the abusive patterns they were observing in Driscoll's ministry. They gave warning about this man. But those warnings were largely ignored by many in the wider church. In 2018, Mark Driscoll actually moved to Arizona and planted another church that he pastors to this day. Now, I tell this story not because I revel in the demise of Mark Driscoll and Marshall's church. Actually, I have an opposite motivation. Trevin Wax wrote a series of blog articles reviewing the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And in speaking of the motivation to speak or write about these things, he quoted Spurgeon. He said this The church is not perfect, but woe to one who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. End quote. Beloved, it is one thing to soberly assess the failures of a man or a church, but quite another to take pleasure in those failings. And the words of Trevin Wax. He says, "Still, there's a line that's easy to cross. When you go from a sober assessment of the imperfection of God's people to finding pleasure in pointing out flaws, the location of that line won't be revealed in a podcast, but in careful examination of your heart." End quote. I don't bring up the story of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll to take pleasure in their demise. I'm actually very saddened that so many people were hurt and are still hurt by the sinful actions at that church. I pray that Mark would be truly repentant, and I also pray that God would use that debacle for His glory and for the good of His people. Now, I tell this story of Mars Hill as a warning of how quickly men and women who are convinced they are doing God's will can fall away. Now, you may argue that Driscoll was never on the right path, and some do, and that may be a valid argument, but I insist that this is still a story of a group of people who were convinced that they were doing the work of God in ministry. And somewhere along the line, they veered into a man centered ministry that was not recognizable as a New Testament church. But this shouldn't surprise us. As we read the pages of Scripture. Albeit in less public ways, this has happened over and over in the nearly 2,000-year history of the church. We only have to look at the New Testament to see these patterns emerge. The, The authors wrote much of the New Testament correcting the fledgling church of their day. I'm reminded of the third verse of the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, She waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. The point is that the church is not at rest today. The church will experience toil and tribulation until her Lord returns. And those tribulations come from attacks from the outside, but they also come from attacks on the inside. Many of the attacks, again, come from within. That's what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, 29, and 30. That savage wolves would come in among you, not sparing the flock. That they would speak perverse things to draw the disciples away from them. Now, as I said earlier, we just finished our study in Ephesians. And in Ephesians 6, 24, we saw last week that that Paul ended that letter by saying, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible Now, with all this in mind, I want to draw your attention to the idea of our love for Christ, our love for Jesus being incorruptible. Last week I told you this word has the idea of something that does not decay or is unending. In truth, only those who have an unending love for our Lord, in truth, those are the ones who have received grace, the grace that Paul talks about. They are the ones who have been saved by grace through faith. Now, today... With all that in mind, again, let's look at the rest of the story of the Ephesian church. And I think their story is instructive to us as we endeavor here at Grace Bible Church, as we endeavor going forward into the future, as we endeavor to remain faithful as a church. Now, before we jump into our passage, let me give you some context and background to Revelation chapter 2. Turn to to Revelation 1.1. The Apostle John writes the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place now the first phrase here makes it clear that this is a revelation or the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by the father now Jesus then was to reveal to God's servants future things which must take place now Look at the end of verse one and verse two. It says he and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his servants the things which soon, must soon take place, must soon take place. Um, to his, I'm sorry. Let me say this again. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, here's what we see, is that that these things have been revealed to the Apostle John, and he wrote them down in the book we call Revelation. The more full title, taken from verse 1, is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, look down at verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, the seven churches in Asia, including... Ephesus, then, were the original recipients of this apocalyptic book. Now, the idea of apocalypse has the idea of revealing. Revealing something that was not previously known. Now, I would argue that verse 4 indicates that Revelation was written, then, as a letter to those seven churches. So, the things written in this letter have been revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches. In other words, the words that are in, the, this, in Revelation carry the very, the very authority of the Father and of Jesus Christ himself. Now, in this book, John reveals the glorified Savior. Look down at verses 4 through 8. So we've already seen that this, this is to the seven churches in Asia. Then he says, from him, grace to you and peace, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he who has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him so it is to be amen i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who is and who was and who is is to come the almighty now according to verse 5 this is the same jesus who shed his blood on the cross to redeem us from our sins now that same jesus has been given glory and dominion forever Uh, The same Jesus, then, is the one who is coming on the clouds, or with the clouds, and the one who will judge the living and the dead. Now, I would argue that in these verses, John establishes the, the authority of our Lord as the one who has authority over the churches, and that's important. Now, we don't have time to to completely unpack verses 9 through 20, but I want you to, uh, to give you some observations which I think will be pertinent to our passage. Now, in verses 9 and 10, we see that John was exiled, in exile on the island of Patmos. Now, look at verse 11. It says, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, here John is directed to write down what he sees and to give it to the seven churches. Now, starting in verse, verse tw- verses tw- 12 and 13, John begins to describe one like a son of man. Now, this son of man was described by John as being amongst the seven golden lampstands. Now, we find out later in verse 20, I think it is, that these lampstands are representative of those seven churches. But also, what we have to understand is that throughout Scripture, seven is the number of completeness. Therefore, I would argue that these seven golden lampstands represent not only the churches in Asia Minor, but all churches throughout the church age. Now, look at 12 and and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands in the middle of The seven golden lampstands, I saw the one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So, what we see in these verses, we see this one like a son of man. Now, in verses 13 through 16, John describes this son of man as holy and pure, but he also describes him as authoritative. He is righteous, he is a righteous and pure judge who is full of glory and majesty. Now, I want to draw your attention to verse 17. Listen to what happens when John comes in contact with this one like a son of man. Just listen. So when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And, I, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, the son of man who we will identify as the Lord Jesus presents himself to John. And John fell like a dead man. Now, in other words, John saw the glorified Jesus, the glorified Christ, and it terrified him. Literally terrified him. Now, let's not forget that John spent three years of ministry with Jesus. So, so in that three years of ministry, in that three years of ministry, you know, we know that he built a relationship with Jesus. He even described himself as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. In other words, again, John enjoyed a deep and intimate relationship with Christ, with the Lord Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry. But here in Revelation 1, he fell like a dead man at his presence. He fell like a dead man. Now look, at, look back at verse 17. I've already read it. But notice this. He placed his right hand on me and said, saying, do not be afraid. Beloved, I think this was a tender gesture to comfort John, it's as if he were saying, "I'm the same one who has always loved you. I'm that same one who you built a relationship, who built a relationship with you, and I'm that same one. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid." Then in verse 18, Jesus reiterates his authority. Now look at verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus gives what I would say is the outline of the book. He says this, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things that are, which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So, therefore, the revelations outline then, and I, this is important that we understand this, is, is chapter 1, we'll call that the vision, that, that, the vision that John describes in chapter 1 that we just went through. That's the things which you have seen. Chapters 2 and 3, which our passage falls in, are the churches, uh, the things which are. So he describes the churches that exist, those seven churches that exist at that time. Now chapters 4 through 22 describe future things. So the things that will take place after these things. And if you look at chapter 4, he reiterates that in chapter 4. He says, he says show them things that will happen after these things. In chapter 4, I think it's verse 1. Yeah, now, and after these things, I look and be, uh, oh, it says, and come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So from chapter 4 to 22, it's basically future things. Now, look at verse 20. I've already pointed this out, but I think it's a, we need to reiterate it. He says, "As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So he gives us a key to understand all that he has said in, in chapter one. So we know who these people are, who, the, who, the, who these are, who the, the, what the symbol. We understand the symbolism through this verse. Now. Before we jump into our text, I should make a few comments regarding these letters. Now these letters from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. I want you to notice that each of these that each of these letters are written to the angel of each church. Now, this could be <clears throat> this could be an actual angel, but it is more likely that this refers to the key leader or pastor of the church. Now, so these these physical churches probably a key leader or pastor. And we should reiterate that each of these churches existed when John wrote Revelation. In other words, the church at Ephesus was a real church that existed in the city of Ephesus. Therefore, so it's the same church that we talked about or we've studied for the past two years. Therefore, these churches applied to those churches in that time period. But I would also say, as I said earlier, that these churches are representative of all churches throughout the church age. Now, only two of the churches received commendation without condemnation. Five of the churches have some mixture of good and evil. They will descend from a church that has a love that has grown cold, Ephesus, to being totally apostate. Churches throughout the church age have have exhibited a mixture of these attributes, both positive and negative, given in these letters. I say that because Grace Bible Church Gainesville is some mixture of the churches in Revelation. Some mixture. We don't know, well, exactly, but we're some mixture. I would Argue, though, that we would tend toward being like Ephesus, whose love has grown cold, versus Laodicea, who is lukewarm, if that makes sense. Now, all of this brings to our, us to our text in Revelation 2, 1-7. As I said earlier, this letter is instructive for us, I believe. Therefore, I have framed our outline to ask some probing questions for us to consider. In this passage... Jesus has a personalized letter for the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.1. His sobering message gives us four probing questions we need to continually, we continually need to ponder if we want to remain a faithful church. That's, that's the issue, remaining faithful. That's even what I titled the sermon. So, here's the question. If we received a personal letter from our Lord... What would be, first, his commendation of us? Second, his concern with us, third, his command to us, fourth, his counsel for us. Let's look at the first question we need to ponder if we want to remain a faithful church. What would be his commendation of us? Look at your text in two one. To the angel of the church at in Ephesus right the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this now we've already established in this opening that the angel is probably a key pastor or elder at the church in Ephesus who it's that's probably who's receiving the letter now i it wouldn't be problematic if it were an angel but i think that that's probably the better interpretation now we saw that the, the author is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from the New Testament, we know that he is the one who promised to build his church. That's Matthew 16, 18. He has been granted authority over all things, including his church. That is Matthew 28, 18. And he's also, and that's also shown in Matthew 16, 19. He is the head of the church. We know that from Ephesians 1, 22. We also know that he has delegated his authority in the church to the apostles and to those who follow them, namely the elders of the church. As such, since that is all true, he then holds accountable the church. He holds these elders, these leaders, accountable for the churches. Now, in Revelation one twenty, we found that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, ultimately, ultimately, then 2 1, this is a statement or declaration that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. But this also reveals, and we need to take note of this, that Jesus regularly walks among all the churches. He is even involved in those churches with a mix of good and evil deeds, is he not? He knows, he knows what's going on in them. Even in the apostate church, he calls for men and women to repent and follow him. It should be instructive to us. Now, I believe, I would argue, that Jesus comes in among all the churches even today. Therefore, he knows exactly what we are doing. He is walking among us right now. I believe that. And he knows everything about us. So the question is, what would he say to us? What would, be, what would be his questions of us? What would his commendation be of us? Now look at chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. Jesus writes, I, or Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Now, in these verses, he keeps going, he commends the church at Ephesus. Notice that he says, I know. Now, again, this shows the personal nature of Jesus' knowledge of the church. I, I know. Now, the verb translated know suggests that he has a full, he has a full and ongoing knowledge of the church. Uh, Ultimately, nothing escapes his notice and is outside of his awareness. He knows the deeds and the works of this church. He knows them intimately. He knows everything about us. This shows that that Jesus knows a history of all the good things that we've done, and unfortunately, He knows all the bad things. He knows the ways that, he, the, he, that we follow Him. Now, in terms of the church at Ephesus, notice that Jesus has knowledge of the church's toil. Jesus knew that the church had been had given an all-out effort for gospel ministry. Quite literally, this word has the idea of giving everything we have, physically, mentally, and emotionally. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, In the midst of the pagan darkness that surrounded them, the Ephesian church was aggressively evangelizing the lost, edifying the saints, and caring for those in need. End quote. I mean, they were a great church. Jesus also had knowledge of their per- perseverance. He commended them for their patience in, in, in incredibly trying circumstances. They, they, they courageously accepted hardship and suffering and loss. And despite, despite these uh, sometimes grave circumstances, they remained faithful to follow Christ. And Jesus also has a knowledge of the church's refusal to tolerate evil men. According to the, the Lord, the church acted in a way that glorified Christ. They did not tolerate sin in the camp. They did not tolerate sin in any way. They, they took seriously Paul's exhortation not to walk as the Gentiles walk. That's 4.17-20. through 20. They, they understood that they did not learn Christ in that way. As such, they did not tolerate the practice of impurity. Jesus also had knowledge of their spiritual discernment. According to, to, to the Lord, this church didn't allow false teachers and wolves to roam free within the body of Christ. They, they didn't allow it. They, they put to test those who called themselves apostles, and they, they were not. They, they found them to be false. Now, the Ephesian church never forgot Paul's warning in Acts 28-31. They diligently guarded themselves, and, and the flock against savage wolves who wouldn't spare the flock. They stood against men who spoke perverse things, trying to draw away their disciples after them. They took seriously Paul's ex- exhortation to be on guard for themselves. They were alert. They were alert. Now drop down to verse 6. Jesus also commended them because they did not tolerate heresy. Look at verse 6. Yet this this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, it's not possible to identify this specific heresy. The early church fathers link it to Nicholas, who was one of the seven men appointed to serve in Acts 6. Some say that False teachers misrepresented him by twisting his teachings. Either way, whether it was directly Nicholas or whether it was somebody, uh, there were people who were twisting what he was saying or what he taught. Either way, the Nicolaitans were immoral and wicked, and they led people into wicked deeds. And his message to the church at Pergamum, uh, Jesus compared the teaching of Balaam, to those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He said, he described Balaam, Balaam as a man who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So, he goes on to say, so you also have some who are in the same way, they in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it seems then, that was the church at Pergamum, It seems then whatever doctrinal error they were teaching at, at Ephesus and Pergamum, the end result was sexual immorality, which Jesus obviously hates. Ultimately, then, what we have to understand is that is a main mark of a false teacher. False teachers live to indulge their sexual desires, and they are greedy. Thankfully, the church at Ephesus rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans and they rejected those who propagated their heresy. In all, Jesus commended the church for their toil and their perseverance and their spiritual discernment and their rejection of men who taught, uh, taught heresy. That's quite a a commendation, a list of commendations from the Lord. Now here, here's what I want to ask you. This is the question. If the Lord wrote a letter to this church, what would be his commendation? Would he commend us for our toil in serving him and others in the body of Christ? Would he commend us for our perseverance in the face of difficult circumstances? What about our philosophy of ministry? I just gave it earlier, Uh, our ministry priorities. Would he commend us for those? Would he commend us for our love for the truth, our proclamation of his word, our stand against the errors of the times, for protecting against wolves who arise in our midst, uh, for our adhered, adherence to doctrine. Would he, would he commend us for those things? I, I pray that the answer is yes to all those questions. But I, as I said earlier, this is what we need to ask, do, is we need to continue asking that question or those questions. We need to continue ask those questions to ensure that we don't veer off track in those ways. Now, let's look at the second question we need to ponder if we want to remain a faithful church. What would be His concern with us? What would be our Lord's concern with this church? Now, Jesus gave an amazing commendation to the church at Ephesus. And if He had stopped there, if He had, you know, full stop right there, period, we'd be left with believing that that was a great church, right? Right? In many ways, it was a great church. They were doing many things well, as as evidenced by what the Lord said. But look back at your text in Revelation 2.4. It says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Again, in the words of John MacArthur, despite all the praiseworthy elements in the Ephesian church, the penetrating, omniscient gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ had spotted a fatal flaw, end quote. Now, you may recall from our study in Ephesians that before in, in Ephesians, Paul had commended the church for their love in, of the Lord and, and for the saints. In Ephesians 1.15, he says, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. So he had commended them for their love. In, in 3.17, Paul had said that they were rooted and grounded in love and In 319, he prayed that they would know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. And in 623, which we saw last week, he expressed a desire that they would possess a love for the Lord and for others that is accompanied by faith and whose source is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 624, he says, grace be with all all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Now, again, that could be, sp- be spoken of as an unending, unending love or a love that does not change. Now, I think it's instructive for us to understand that Paul wrote Ephesians somewhere around 60 to 62, and I would argue that Revelation was given to John somewhere around 94 to 96. Now, I, said, I think I said 80, 90 on the fly last week, but, but I would actually argue that it was somewhere around 94, 96. But in any case... Revelation was written, in in my argument, Revelation was written at least one generation after the church at Ephesus during Paul's day. Several years and a generation had passed. That's the point. The old generation was commended for their doctrine, which, listen carefully, the old generation was commended for their doctrine, which resulted in love. Understand that. They had a right doctrine That had a right result. The new generation was commended for their doctrine, but their love had grown cold. They had lost their love for God the Father and the Lord Jesus. They had then necessarily, that necessarily led to a loss of love for one another. The church at Ephesus had become a cold, dark, and dreary place. They were intent on doctrinal purity. But they forgot that right doctrine always leads to love for God and love for others. Do you all understand that? That if we have right doctrine, it always leads to love for God and love for others. Because that is, that is the point. Now, in their state, that is in John's day, they were in danger of doing more harm than good. Race Stedman warns, If you trust yourself to walk in the light of your own conscience, uninstructed or little instructed by the Word of God, you will end up doing things that you are deeply and sincerely convinced are right, but they may be terribly hurtful and destructive within the church. That's why, beloved, it is so important to have right doctrine, but have a right understanding of that doctrine that leads to love for God and love for neighbor. The church understood cold doctrine but they had forgotten God's heart in the process. Of the seven churches of Revelation, I would argue that Grace Bible Church has the most in common with the church at Ephesus and the church at Philadelphia. The church, <clears throat> that church, Philadelphia, had been, was described as a faithful church. And I truly believe that Grace Bible Church strives to be a faithful church. And I, I'm convinced that we are a faithful church, but, Anytime, and get this clearly, anytime there is a zeal for doctrinal purity, there is a, a tendency to abandon love. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doctrinally pure, because I would argue that doctrinal purity leads to true love, leads to love for God and love for neighbor. We can, beloved, we can strive to be faithful and maintain God's Word without losing our love for the Lord. Just listen to Jesus' commendation for the church at Philadelphia. Again, I would say of the, two, of the, of the seven churches, uh, we, we have the most in common with the church at Ephesus and the church at Philadelphia. Listen to what He said uh, to the church at, at Philadelphia. He says, You have kept My Word and have not denied My, my name. So this church, this faithful church at Philadelphia, had kept his word. Well, guess what? That's the the teaching of the word is our doctrine, right? So when we keep the word, when we keep the word, I mean we can, we we need to keep his word, which leads to love for 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 God and others. Now, the question is what would be Jesus' concern for us? If he were to write a letter right now, what would he say? I would imagine that he would he would exhort us to remain faithful. I'm sure that He would exhort us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of pre- peace. That's Ephesians 4.3. I suspect that He would tell us, let all that you do be done in love. We can never lose sight, beloved. We never lose sight. Again, that cold doctrine without love is useless. Let's look at the third question we need to ponder if we want to remain a faithful church. What would be His command to us? What would be His command to us? Look at your text in five. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Now, in this verse, Jesus lovingly gives three actions that would put this church back on track. I would argue that these three actions are instructive to keep us from getting off tracks. track. He says first. First, He tells them to remember. Remember. The verb has the idea of, of keep on remembering. Again, we need to be pondering these questions. The reason why we need to ponder these questions is because, because it makes us look back. It makes us remember. It makes us go to His Word. We need to, we, we need to keep on remembering. They, they were to make it a habit, their habit, to keep looking back at their history. Specifically, they were to remember from where they had fallen. They had forgotten, this church at Ephesus had forgotten their love and and their faithfulness of the past. They had forgotten the purpose and result of keeping God's word, love for God and for brethren. And so Jesus tells them, remember, remember, keep on remembering. He also tells them to repent, repent, repent. He wanted them to recognize the sinfulness of the path that they were on. He wanted them to recognize that they were headed for destruction. They had become a loveless and a lifeless church. They had forgotten. They, they were in danger, that, that is, of the, of the Lord removing their lampstand. We see that later in this verse. In other words, they would cease to be a church. If, you, if a church has its lampstand removed, it, it means that they are no longer a church in the Lord's eyes. He wanted them to reject their sins and and to turn from them. He wanted them to love the Lord their God with all their soul, with all their might, with with all their being, and to, to love one another as themselves. That is the royal law, according to James. He also tells them they need to restart. They need to restart, so they need to remember, repent, and restart. He says, do the deeds you did at first. He wants them to start over and, and do what they had done before. They needed to go back and recapture their love, the reason for doctrinal purity. They needed to rekindle their love for Christ and their love for one another. I remember as a manager many years ago, some employees had had a well-worn path to my door. In other words, they remained in trouble for various things. Generally, this resulted in losing their employment. Generally, it led to me having to fire them. But sometimes they would recognize their dilemma and they would ask what they needed to do to get back on the right track. You know, to get back in good graces, if you will. And I would always tell them, today is a new day. Just start doing what is right and it will go well with you. That's how it is. That's, that's it. That's the answer. I, I, I always hoped when I told them that that they would actually turn it around. But... As this church, when this church received this letter from Jesus, it was a new day. He wanted them to remember, he wanted them to repent, and he wanted them to restart. He, he was giving them that opportunity. And I think this is a good place to start as we consider what his command to us would be. We constantly need to remember the reasons we exist. I believe this is captured in our pillars that I gave earlier. We need to be willing to recognize our missed steps and repent and turn from them. We, we, are apt, we have to recognize we're apt to make mistakes. We're apt to make missteps. But if we constantly change where we've gone wrong, we will get a fresh start and we will remain faithful. Let's look at the fourth question we need to ponder if we want to remain a faithful church. What would His counsel for us be? Or what would be His counsel for us? Look at your text in Revelation 2.7. <clears throat> he writes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, we must take heed of Jesus' message to the churches. We must also take heed of what the Spirit says to the churches. Every church in the church age should, is, is responsible to take heed of Jesus' message to each of these churches. They serve as, as a warning, if you will. But I would also add that we need to, to take heed of inspired Scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.21 says that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. At Revelation 2.7. He says, To him who overcomes... Jesus actually attaches this promise to each church. Therefore, we know this would be His counsel for us. If we overcome, then He says, I will grant to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That means He will grant us eternal life. Now, I believe (coughs) there's great hope here. There's great hope here for the individual believer. I would counsel all of you. Let me, just, let me just say this carefully. I would counsel all of you to remain as, as you can, remain in solid Bible teaching churches that love God and one another. I would counsel that. If you leave here, and, and we know that this is sort of a people come and go, as you, as you come, as you go, I would counsel to remain in a Bible teaching church. But sometimes we have to recognize that that's not possible. Sometimes we end up in difficult circumstances. Many times, even in solid churches, we can look around and be grieved by those who are are influenced by the world and have fallen for worldly thinking. But this this is a wonderful promise I think we can take hold of. True Christians are overcomers. True Christians will overcome the world. John says, Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 4, 5 4, and 5, he says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Church, I think we can find great solace in that truth. All, all believers, all true believers, all those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in John's word that He is the Son of God, will overcome the world by God's grace through faith. By the power of the Spirit that works in us, we overcome the power of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8.37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now look back at your text in Revelation 2.7. And we've already seen this, I will grant to, he, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Put simply, he promised eternal life to those who by his grace through faith, he, he has promised that, by, that by, by, his grace, by, by his grace through faith that they will persevere and overcome. He has promised eternal life to those. I'm reminded of James 1.12. James writes, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, if you are a member here at Grace Bible Church, I'm I'm assuming that you want us to remain a faithful church, to be a faithful church and to remain a faithful church. I, I I love the words of Charles Spurgeon, Oh, to have a church with the deep godliness of people who know the the Lord in their very hearts and will seek to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. End quote. I want to be a part of a church that that can be said of. And I believe that if we continually ponder these questions, we will be faithful and we will remain faithful. So I challenge you, especially those of you who are in leadership or desire leadership responsibility, but really anyone, who is a part of this church, I challenge you. What do you think? What would Jesus commend us for? What would be His concern with us? What would be His command to us? What would be His counsel? We have to recognize that we, we will be attacked. We will, as a church, have a tendency to move in the, in the wrong direction. We will be deceived at times. John Calvin says, "I can say to myself that I have been assailed on all sides, and have been and have scarcely been able to enjoy repose for a single moment, but have always had to sustain some conflict either from enemies without or within the church." End quote. And I think if if you asked church, if you asked those who are in the church over the years, they would give a similar testimony. So as we have faced these as we face these attacks. And consider these questions, I urge you. Here's what I want to, I want to end, with, end, end with here. Make these things a matter of prayer. Ask God for spiritual discernment. Ask Him for direction. Ask Him for clarity. Uh, Philippians Philippians 4, 6-7 is instructed, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the point is, as you see things, as as God reveals things to you, as you see them, make them a matter of prayer. Uh, Said simply, pray for this church. Pray for this church. Second, take these things to leadership for their input and mutual edification. You may find that they, myself, they, others, have similar concerns and have been praying, maybe even for many years, about these things. You may find that those dangers that you're seeing haven't been recognized and they are thankful for your discernment. But again, we need to do this for the building up of the body. Third, refrain from gossiping about these things. We have to recognize how easy it is for for us to slip into gossip. As we see things that are not quite right, or we think are not quite right, we, we think we see something, and then we go and we talk to somebody. Hey, what do you think about this? Be careful. Be careful. Very careful. Ephesians 129 gives us a great test for gossip. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that you will give grace to those who hear. So when you see something, think of it in terms of as you describe, as you think about it, as you talk about it, you need to be thinking in terms of edification according to the need. We need to ask ourselves whether our words are edifying or for building up, or whether they're meant to hurt and tear others down. Let me close on a very different very different note. I'm you know, sermons are interesting. This was a sermon, obviously, for believers. I'm preaching to believers. I'm preaching to those who are committed to the church. I'm those who, who love the church. But I'm compelled to urge those here who have not turned to Jesus in saving faith. I'm compelled to understand that there are people here who don't know the Lord. That they, have not, they have not turned to Him. Don't wait. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. I told a, a young man yesterday, or I may have been the day before, We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. Unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, and that's very possible, the writer of Hebrews warns in Hebrews 9.27, we all face death and judgment. He says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. I just want to urge those who have not turned to Christ. If you are not in Christ you face the terrifying prospect of standing before Him on the basis of your own righteousness. In the words of Paul, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is true for everyone here. And unless, and unless you're in Christ, unless you have turned to Him in saving faith, You face terrifying judgment. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God. So, if you have not turned to Him, if you're here today and you don't know Him, I beg you today on behalf of God, come to Jesus where you will find rest for your weary souls. He shed His blood on the cross He suffered the wrath of the Father that you wouldn't have to. He calls for you to believe. He calls for you to believe, to turn from your sin and believe and put your faith in Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You today. I pray for our church. I pray as we consider these questions, Father, that we would continually do so, that we would continually ask the questions so that we might not get off track. Father, we see so many examples. I gave an example earlier of this church in Washington. Lord, we see other examples. Even today, men who seemed faithful are falling away at at what seems to be alarming rates, but you're not alarmed. You know, you already know the heart of men. Lord, we pray, even now, Lord, we trust in you alone. May we always trust in you alone. May we be a church that, yes, is doctrinally pure, that loves right doctrine. May we be a church that could be commended for our love for the truth, for our proclamation of the word, like the church of Philadelphia. But may we never lose our first love. May we never lose our love for you and our love for others. In Christ's name.